0: Before I get into the teaching of the Word, uh, just a couple of quick things. Um, I, as I look out, I see a lot of pink, and I'm encouraged by that. My, uh, my tie, you can't see, but it does have the, uh, the ribbon for uh, breast cancer awareness on the back. Um, I looked over here and there was a bracelet on the uh, organ where Joy plays. And on the bracelet, I don't know who put it there, but it says, fight like a girl. And I wanted to say a word about that. I have two daughters, and I have a wife that I couldn't find for just a moment. Uh, That uh, if there's one thing I've learned in having a wife and two daughters is that really, really, I think women are tougher than guys. And so to fight like a girl means something to me. And uh, Joy, the thing that I would want you to know is you're not alone we're with you. And uh, so with that, let's, uh, let's turn to the Word. I first would like to pray, and then um, go into the Word together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, nothing happens here that is spiritual, nothing happens here that is supernatural, unless your Holy Spirit visits us now. So as we listen and as I preach and as we go through these next moments together, may you and the power of your Holy Spirit speak into our souls, speak into our hearts that we may love you, see you, and know you better. I pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Let me start with a question. You've heard the text read. It may seem like there's an obvious answer to this, but I don't know that there really is. The question, well, first you can see, this is actually a long day because it's the day that Jesus is tried, found guilty, and then sent to the cross. So last week, or two weeks ago, I talked about the Passover. This week, it is the completion of this very long day in the life of Christ. Christ. The question that I have is this, one, twofold. Who killed Jesus, and why did they kill him? Who killed Jesus, it may seem like an obvious answer, and then why did they kill him? So, as we go through this, hopefully, we'll be able to answer that with great clarity. But I will say this, a key in solving a good murder mystery is to find the person with motive. In our home, Peggy and I, we'll, we'll watch a lot of times British uh, It movies, you know, murder mysteries, and uh, you're always led to believe it's this person, and then as it goes on, you realize, no, it's not that person, it's this person. And if it's a really good one, you realize, no, it's not even that person, it's that person. And the text can be a little bit like that today. Growing up, when I was a kid, I enjoyed playing the board game Clue. Y'all may remember, some of you probably remember that. In the board game Clue, there was the little red piece was Miss Scarlet. And then there was Professor Plum, so of course he had to be purple. And then there was Miss Peacock, and I guess peacocks are blue because she was always blue. And then there was Mr. Green, guess what color he was? Red. No, I'm kidding. He was green. And then there was Colonel Mustard. Probably could guess what color he was. And then Mrs. White. She was white. And the game would go on and you would collect clues throughout the game and then eventually someone would say, it was Miss Scarlet with the revolver in the study. And that would be how you would resolve the winner. You know, if you picked up all the clues. well, in our text, the characters in the crucifixion of Christ are the Jewish leaders and high priest. There's the Jewish people. There's the Roman officials. And then there's the Roman soldiers and the Roman guards. The weapon, of course, that was used for the murder was the cross, the crucifixion. The truth is that, humanly speaking, the Romans played a part and the Jews were big instigators. And in who bears the greatest blame for Christ's death? But in our text, in a moment I'm going to show you where it says, and Jesus says, that it actually was the Jews who had greater fault. And, but there's more to the story. The real responsibility does not rest solely on either the Romans or the Jewish people. What put Jesus on the cross was God's own determination to punish his son for your sins and mine. John the Baptist, and just early in our book in the in the Gospel of John, when he saw Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God had been using lambs to pass over God's people and not pass judgment. And now here we are at the moment in time that all history has pointed to. It is the Passover, and Jesus is the ultimate, once and for all, Passover lamb. But it was actually mine and your sins that killed Jesus. The Father decided to kill Jesus that the penalty for our sin could be forgiven and justified by God for all eternity. The Romans certainly played a part. The Jews certainly played a part. But I would argue both of them were just bit parts, small parts. The story we will read and study this morning is just a further revealing of how these events actually came to pass. There is, as I've talked about, the lower story. And the lower story is what we're seeing and experiencing in this life. But I am convinced, and the older I get, the more convinced I am, that there is an upper story. And the upper story is, is dictating what is happening in the lower story. And it is because of the upper story that sometimes things happen to us in this life that we just can't make sense of. We cannot get our finite minds to wrap around what is happening in the lower story. But I know this from the Scriptures. In the upper story of the crucifixion, not the lower story, what we see, the Trinity, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, had gotten together before creation and mapped out a plan that they would send the Son into this world in the lower story to die on a cross for the sins of their people. I'm convinced that that is the way the Scriptures teach it. So let's look again at our text and begin in John 19, 1 through 3. Look with me there at John 19, 1 through 3. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus, and he flogged him. He beat him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. It's interesting in my study, the question that I ask is, where does this idea of Jesus, king of the Jews, where is that really coming from? And uh, what I've learned is, There's actually really only two places in the scripture that Jesus is referred to in this way. And it's also interesting that it was never a a Jewish person or an Israelite that referred to him like this. The first place we see this in the New Testament, Jesus being referred to the king of the Jews, is in the account of his birth, the nativity. And so when Jesus enters the world, The magi, another word for that would be the wise men that come from afar. Most of us know the Christmas story. They show up, and they say to King Herod in Matthew 2.2, this is what they say. This is the first time the, the term king of the Jews is revealed in Scripture. They say, where is he that is born king of the Judeans? Another way of saying Jews. Where is he that is born king of the Judeans? So right from the jump, these wise men are calling the baby Jesus king of the Jews." So then, the question troubles Herod, because he saw that as his title, and we see that in Matthew two: seven through eight. So he attempts to trick the magi, attempts to trick the wise men to reveal the exact location of the newborn king. However, They don't tip their hand. They don't let him know where the newborn king is. And so you know what Herod does? He orders all of the newborn baby boys to be executed in what we and theologians refer to as the massacre of the innocents. And all of these baby boys in Bethlehem are wiped out, a whole generation. Mary, the mother of Jesus escapes to Bethlehem with her newborn son and husband, and they hide out in Egypt beyond Herod's jurisdiction. The second place that we see king of the Jews is at the end of Jesus' life, so it's interesting. He's called the king of the Jews at his birth, and then he's called the king of the Jews at the end. Never by anyone other than Gentiles, in other words, no Israelites call him that, only Gentiles. If you're not an Israelite, you're a Gentile. If you're sitting here today and you're going, I'm neither one of those, actually you are. You're a Gentile if you're not from Israel. And so we're all Gentiles except for those of us that are Jewish. In the contrast, they, they come to him and they say, he is the king of the Jews in the title in the account of the nativity, it leads to all the massacre of these children. But at the end of Jesus' life, calling him the King of the Jews actually leads to and is part of the crucifixion. So though that is an idea of where the title comes from. Now look again in your Bibles at John 14, I mean John 19, 4 through 8. John nineteen four through 8. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. The law was, if someone claims to be God, then they're a blasphemer, and they should die. That's what they're referring to. Because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. You see, Pilate has begun to want to distance himself from Jesus in this crucifixion. And it could be, as I mentioned two weeks ago, because his wife, good wife, sent note to him over in a parallel gospel in Matthew 27, verses 19, and this is what she told him. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. The word was, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate has to have this tape running in the back of his mind of what his wife has told him. But even though she's warned warned him, Pilate allows, probably orders the Roman soldiers out to go and flog him. And with a whip full of bone fragments that tear through the flesh and into the muscle with each snap of the Roman soldier's wrist, Jesus tied to a whipping post is now flogged. They smash a crown of thorns on his head. Matthew records that the soldiers also put a reed in his right hand, mocking like a scepter carried by a king. Having thus outfitted Jesus in this caricature of a king, they continue to this sadistic game of kneeling down before him and mocking him. And they say, hell, king of the Jews. And in an ugly mockery and of disdain for him, they also begin to come up to him and slap him in the face. Matthew records that they spat on him, seized the reed in his hand, and beat him over the head with it. you ever been in a situation, anything like that? I have. Not scourging, but threatened and pushed and punched. You would think somewhere along the Here, he would snap he would explode with righteous anger and he would do what only he could do which is call down 10,000 angels and just wipe them out no Jesus would show real strength through humility and meekness It is a strength under control. Pride says, kill them all. I know my pride does when somebody pulls in front of me on the interstate. Show them who's boss. You know what godliness and humility says? I'll entrust myself to him who judges rightly. And Jesus, his own creation, beating him, spitting on him, mocking him, and he holds, and he holds, and he holds. That's a real man. That's a God man. Meanwhile, Pilate comes out of the praetorium again, implying that he has been watching and approving of what has happened this whole time, lest you think Pilate is actually a good person because he's saying his blood's not on my hands. He actually knows everything that has been going on, and he comes out, and he says, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Pilate's trying to play both sides against the middle. I'm not really guilty, but I know my guys just took him out there and beat him half to death. Once again, Pilate affirmed his innocence. But the pronouncement of which heightens the injustice that he's just allowed to happen to Christ. At that point, Jesus came out. He's still wearing the crown of thorns. He's still wearing this purple robe that the soldiers have dressed him up with so that he looks like a king and sarcastically Pilate says behold the man not king of the Jews but behold the man Jesus is bleeding from his scourging and the crown his face is bruised and swollen from being beaten by Pilate's soldiers he looked like anything but a king at that moment Pilate hoped this beating and pathetic figure would satisfy their bloodlust and elicit sympathy for the multitude. His designation of Jesus as the man instead of your king was his attempt to say that Jesus poses no threat to you, no danger. Why don't you let him go? He's a simple man. Then we look in John 19, 9 through 11. It's so fascinating how things begin to turn. In 19, 9 through 11, it says, He entered his headquarters again, talking about Pilate. Hang on. And he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We're going to look at that in a minute. Is there greater sin? Is there lesser sin? He says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. But notice, he says, where are you from? And Jesus gives him no answer. As the situation is deteriorating, Pilate's fear is increasing. When he heard the Jewish leaders say, he claims to be the son of God, Pilate, Pilate becomes more afraid. You see, Pilate is cynical but he's also, like most Romans in this time, superstitious. What if this Jesus is somehow a son of God in human form, and what if he could supernaturally retaliate? What if he has been tortured and beaten? What if I've been doing this to him, and he's going to use his supernatural power to take vengeance on me? So Pilate in a last-ditch effort, comes back in there to him, and he says, Don't you know I have authority to let you go or crucify you? And Jesus tells him what? He says, You'd have no authority over me at all if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is in control this entire time. Jesus was fully assured that he was where he was, not by the selection of a man or the election of a group, but by the sovereign appointment of God the Father. He wasn't there because the high priest selected him to be there. He wasn't there because the mob has elected him to be crucified. Jesus is standing before Pilate and he says, you have no authority over me. I'm not here by the election of a man, by the selection of a group. I'm here by the sovereign appointment of God and him alone. And so I shall stand in my silence. Look with me in your Bibles at Romans 8, 31. Romans 8, 31, 32. Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's telling them, this is an argument. If you follow the argument, it's an argument from greater to lesser. And I'm I'm sharing this argument with you because life is hard. And I want you to see the, the greater to lesser argument and what that can mean in the life of a believer. Look with me at Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, meaning as his children, who can be against us? And then he says the greater to lesser argument. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if the Father is willing to crucify his own Son, the greatest in all the universe, how would he not also be willing to give his people all things? Now, you may could take that to a bad place, and what I mean by a bad place is you might take that to mean, well then, I should have perfect health, I should be a billionaire, I should have everything I want. But that's not the lower story. The lower story is hotter. (laughs) And air condition is cooler. And hopefully the upper story shall kick in. Um, basically God is making the argument through Paul if you're my children and I would give my son for you how much more would I give you all things now I think the all things is much more about here because he says what could man do to us what could Death, even do to you as a believer. If you really believe, truly believe that this life, this lower story is just that, it's the lower story. There's an eternity ahead. Then we may go through and we will go through some hard times. Jesus was crucified. We will go through hard times, but he will be with us. Now, I want to share this with you. It's a quote from uh, Alan Redpath, and you should see it on the screen. It says this, There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my heart, No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. And that is a rest of victory. You see, there is nothing as a child of God that will and can happen to you in this life that doesn't have to go through the Father to get to you. And if it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose. He's going to do something more beautiful than you could probably ever imagine. It doesn't always mean that we get cured. It might, but it may not. Now, let's transition. Jesus says to them, he says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, I've just been talking about God the Father actually putting his son on the cross. But this is not talking about that. This is talking about Jesus is talking to Pilate, and he's saying to Pilate, those that delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And what he's saying is the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas, those have the greater sin because they delivered me over to you. So then my question, and if you're a thinking student of the Bible, your question should be, so are there degrees of sin? What do you think? I've often heard it said that all sins are equal. James 2.10 gives us one reason that we might would say that. In James 2.10 it says, if you have committed one sin, you are guilty of all. If you have committed one sin, you're guilty of all. And what that's really saying is, is that we're all sinners and that that one sin would keep us from living in the presence of a holy God. But, let me say this, there's more to the story, and here's how I would illustrate it. If I come up to you, and let's say, because Michael's down front, and I actually reach under here and pull out a gun and step over here and shoot Michael, one, we'd all be horrified. but two, depending on how I shot him, Michael would be dead. Or what if I just walked down from the stage and spit on him like they did on Jesus? Both of those would be heinous and, and you would look at me as you should as evil. But one of them killed Michael and one of them just left him wiping his face with a rag. So I would say, and I believe the scriptures say, and I'll show you where, some sins have way more consequences than other sins. For example, in this case, the first sin, Michael would be dead. That's a pretty bad consequence. The second one, he's just gotta wipe some stuff off his face. That's not quite as bad. Well, when Jesus spoke, he is saying that in our text. The Jewish leaders who delivered me over to you are more guilty than you are, Pilate, in this situation. And then in Luke 10, Jesus tells them, he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for the town that has rejected him. So there's a degree of punishment. There are actually, I looked up some of them, 25 different situations where you can see in the New Testament these degrees. There's also degrees of reward in heaven. So I won't go through all of them. But I want to say this, and this is the principle that I want to highlight. The level of punishment that we receive in hell seems to be tied to the amount of light a person rejects. For example, it is my belief that God reveals himself to us. He gives us light. When we respond in faith to that light and walk out into that light by faith, it honors him and it brings him glory. But when we get that light and we say, no, I don't believe it, I'm not gonna buy that. Just go read Romans one. Romans one is a great example of not listening to the light that you've been given and what happens to the soul and the person who rejects that light. So, if we reject light, it is dangerous for our souls. Finally, in closing, Look with me at John 19:12 through 16. John 19:12 through 16 it says, "From then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." So when Pilate heard these words, he scared he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. Now it was the day of Pentecost, of preparation of the Passover. Excuse me. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And here's the irony. These are Israelites. And listen to what Israelites say. Who's supposed to be their king? God. Listen to what they say. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. You see, Pilate was being squeezed by the people. They knew how to push in on him. And in the end, they knew Pilate feared man more than he feared God. He feared Caesar and he feared Rome. And so he caves. The supreme moment to which all of redemptive history points and had pointed was right here in our text. And so John carefully says it was the day of preparation of Pentecost, of Passover, excuse me. The time, he says, was about the sixth hour. That means late morning, approaching noon. Pilate's dilemma is expressed in his question. And this is a parallel gospel in Matthew 27, 22, telling the same part of the story that's being told in John 19, there's a fascinating question. And this is the question. Pilate says, think about this. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's the exact words Pilate used. What shall I do with Jesus Who is called Christ that is the question for all humanity that is the question it's the only real question in this life that matters infinitely and eternally what do I do with this man and you know what there's really only two alternatives and you see it in our text They stand and reject Him and they crucify Him or some acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior and they're saved from their sins. There's really only two ways to go with that question. What do you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? You either respond to Him in faith and trust him to come into your life, or you reject him. And rejection means eternal damnation, your soul in a place called hell for eternity. So in conclusion, I started with the game of Clue. In the game of Clue, sometimes it ends like this. It was Miss Scarlet in the study with the revolver But here's how it ends in our story. Ultimately, it wasn't Miss Scarlet. It was the father. The father killed the son. Now, what did he use? Was it a revolver? No, it was the Romans and the Jewish people. But why did he do it? The motive was that he might save you from eternal damnation and me for his glory and for his fame. Let's pray.